before we even started on this topic, mm -hmm. which is going to be sort of a big sir Dharma Bums mashup today. Mm -hmm. I wanted to pu I wanted to put out my redactions about two things I have from the previous podcast we did. Oh no. I didn't I got the Navajo and the Pueblo confused. <laughs> it like bothered me. Oh you did? Yeah, I did. Oh we Remember I was saying <clears throat> oh, the Edward Navajo Abbey. were were the you know, like a peaceful tribe. That's not necessarily true. It's the Pueblo, Colorado, and I was thinking of the Pueblo architecture and all the things that they build. And how they cooked their meals, mm -hmm. and they were more of a peaceful tribe. And then I had one other one too. Well, oh, the black pill from last episode. I sort of had <clears> the <throat> definition wrong. Oh, I see. <clears throat> but I was telling you that it's not a strict definition. People just use it as a way of describing immense pessimism about everything. It's not. <clears throat> it's not reserved to. You know, incels. It doesn't just have <laughs> doesn't just have a definition that's right. rooted to one but, thing. But the Navajo thing, Edward Abbey mentions the Navajo, right? I don't know if he mentions. Well, I don't the remember why it came Pueblo. up. I think we were talking about the Apache somehow. Well, it's the Comanches who are the the fighters, the warriors. But I think the the Navajo were the peaceful ones. No, more peaceful. But the right. Pueblo were, was who I was thinking about. Got it. The Pueblo were in... The, I, I don't even... So I, this I, is I a journalistic remember. correction. I'm just correct. I'm admitting when I'm wrong. This is uh, humility. A moment in humility. That's good. That's, I, we want that to be part of, part of the DNA of the podcast <laughs> broadcast. The way of Christ will live through you, son. Mm. So, with those things mentioned, we're going to go on to Kerouac. No, fair enough. That's today's good. Kerouac. Today, today's fun. <clears throat> you know, I was uh, reading through Car through uh, the Dharma Bums again today, all my highlights and underlines. And well, for you and I, this week was a little bit flipped, right? Because the order in which Jack Kerouac wrote these books was. Dharma Bums first, and then Big Sur second. Mm -hmm. And I had read the Dharma Bums before we decided to, on the theme of this broadcast, um, and you had read Big Sur. And so for whatever reasons, I, don't, I guess just research, uh, I decided to read Big Sur, and you decided to read the Dharma Bums. Yep. And... I gotta say, I really, I think I like the Dharma Bums better. Oh, not to jump to conclusions about the two books right at the beginning, but <clears throat> the Dharma Bums is the better story. It's also closer to Thomas Wolfe's writing, mm. which is something that ran through Kerouac's catalog until Big Sur. In my mind, mm -hmm. you see the collapse of. Really, the things he believed in in Big Sur, mm -hmm. and I think in Big Sur you have what is it? Who, who's Dean Moriarty? Who's Dean in that book? In Big Sur, it's the guy named Cody. Cody, um, and in Cody, you see, you see Kerouac gravitating back towards that, the energy Cody had, right? And in Dharma Bums, he's gravitating towards is it Jaffe? Jaffe. Jaffe's energy, which is much more positive and romantic, right? And Cody's is chaos. Yes. You know, and, and 
but in, even in his writing, I feel like in Big Sur, you're starting to see, you're starting to see a mind breakdown, sort of Joycean. Yes. Right, right down to the poem he writes at the end. I don't know if it's in that book. Is, he, is this book? This is book does have the poem, The Sea. The Sea. And Sea is just, to me, brain salad. Yeah, it didn't do anything for me. In fact, when I had about 50 pages left, uh, well, I thought I had more than that. I thought I had like 75 pages left. And I was just skimming ahead, looking at the chapter divisions. And then I saw that there was a 25-page poem. And I read it. I thought, oh, I'll just read the poem. It seems like an afterthought, and then I'll get back to the text. Uh, and yeah, the poem, I don't know. You know what it is? He's trying to get something out of a failed experience. Mm. So he, wrote, he writes this poem. But he's, the, the experiment of Big Sur failed. Wait, yeah. have you been to Big Sur? No. We've talked about it, right? But I've asked you that before. No and no. I don't uh, know if we've really talked about it. I ask everybody. Much. You've been? Uh, yeah, more than once. I don't know if I've been to actual Big Sur or just the road down mm -hmm. to Big Sur. Mm -hmm. I know I went to the park with Juliana, but I find the drive to Big Sur to be the, the most beautiful drive. And I find it interesting that Kerouac can't get anything out of it that's beautiful because it's, it's like if you can't get it there, you're in trouble. Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I noticed when I was looking at the back of Big Sur after finishing it, there are some notes and there's a, a biography, but it's like a bullet point biography. And it turns out that the Dharma bums Big Sur, and one more. Um, Lonesome Traveler? I don't remember, but these are his Florida novels. So they're novels that he, well, he wrote while he was in Florida. I didn't know that. Yeah, which is interesting. I think there, there's some meaning there that you could tease out. But, um, yeah, it, it's weird because he... He's in Big Sur, and he's kind of just in this drunken haze the entire time. But it's interesting that he can write about it after the fact in a kind of lucid way. So you're reading the thoughts of a drunken man, but the drunken man can write those thoughts down after the fact, which is its own impressive feat, I think. But... Uh, yeah, I will say that the atmosphere is very cool and you do feel like you're at the ocean. Like I lived in Oregon for a little while, right on the coast, um, about an hour, maybe a little less, above uh, Cannon Beach. Oh, it's my favorite town in Oregon. Yeah. It's the best town in Oregon. Which, yeah, a lot of people know. And the atmosphere of Cannon Beach is just like, oh my gosh. It's beautiful, and I, I'm thinking that kind of Pacific Coast vibe uh, is similar to what's going on in Big Sur. There's what, a, can, we, can you confirm or deny? It's well, can, that area I associate with sort of a gray, rocky, yeah, te tempest coast, yeah, tempestuous coast. Yes, I don't associate that with Big Sur, really. But that's probably because every time I've driven down to it, which is twice, 
It's been summer or something. It's been just beautiful weather. Yeah, yeah. And perfect. And the water's, you know, perfect blue. And it feels pastoral. Mm-hmm. And it, but I suppose if yeah, and I think it's for I think it's far enough down that it doesn't really carry the traits of the the northwest coast. Hmm. Because it's just west coast. Yeah, it's just its own thing. Yeah. California coast. Whereas the northwest coast is distinctly, it's it's the kind of ocean I I find scary to think about swimming in. It just feels oh, yeah. ominous, but it feels like you respect it more. Yeah, you you do not really want to go for a long swim long jaunt off the Oregon coast first no. of all there's you know at least I would have the fear of sharks I know that's my fear the fear of the unknown <clears throat> in the, yeah the fear of the unknown you got the the Juan de Fuca plate out there what's that which is apparently like 200 years past due for having a big shock and making a tidal wave imagine riding that out though you're just out there in it. Yeah. Just, yeah, no. Well, first you'd get sucked out and then... But anyway, uh, yeah, there's not really any... I mean, I've tried it a few times and the water's also just very cold. I don't know what the temperature difference is between Oregon it's, latitudes. I think it's probably like the main coast in a lot of ways. Really? Rocky. Mm. You know, I don't know. Let's... Let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk about. Let's just say. Let's just say that Kerouac's from. Where I'm from. Let's just get that out there. No, he's from. He's from Lowell, Massachusetts. Right. And. Right. In Dharma Bums, though, he's coming back to North Carolina. Which is fascinating. Yeah. That's where he stages his family in. That is very interesting. It's Mount. Pleasant he, Royal, something. It's like Black Mountain or something. No, like that's that. close here. He's near Ra- Raleigh in in the in that book. Is he really? He says he gets out to Raleigh. Yeah. I looked it up at one point. I forget what it was though. It's Mount Pleasant. Is it? Don't 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 hold me to it. Yeah, he comes back. He does come back. But but the fact I but the fact that Kerouac's born in Lowell, Massachusetts. His childhood was there. I'm from Massachusetts. I think. When you're up there in the Northeast, you're born into, especially a town like Lowell. Now, Lowell's the northeastern edge of Massachusetts. So the furthest you can go, really, is where he kept going, Mm -hmm. which is the West Coast, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Um, He loved the Northwest, and and Dharma Bums, it was the Northwest at the end when he went to scale desolation. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, peak. I think that that's f- just funny, and I always felt like I could connect to that, because when I when I was younger, even even though San Francisco, he's was, a New England kid. He's a New England kid yearning for the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And in Dharma Bums, you have that realized. Right. Even though he doesn't position himself as a New Englander in that story, but you have it realized. Or maybe his family moved to North Carolina, but I don't think that that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. Because they moved in town and city, they moved to New York. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, yeah, so he, he comes out of, he's, you know, the this is the beat generation, right? This is 19... He's kind of doing a, his own personal, like, manifest destiny. That's what it is. That, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, because you know pilgrims land in Massachusetts, and and then even until the nineteen from sixteen twenty to the nineteen fifties, you still have people trying to trek across America and get to the Pacific. Yeah, man, you know it's just funny how he treats, how he views his traveling traveling through his family and where he's from, because he he'll come home. He yeah. does it in Dharma bombs. He'll come home. Come home for Christmas. Right. I mean, town and city, he comes home for Christmas. But then he just kind of like, all right, he leaves. Doesn't yeah. even say goodbye. He leaves and he's like, I'll be back next Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. Wow. I, that's that's sad almost. True, but it, it almost seems like that may have been a way that people did things a long time ago. I don't know. You just come in. You... Have dinner, <laughs> spend a few days, and you're like, all right, Just I'm going to be down. back on the road. Well, well in the Dharma Bums, his family annoyed him. True. They got under his skin because he was going out in the woods, you remember? Right, right. He was going out in the woods. Meditating. And finding Zen. Yes. And he would, he would come back, and they would kind of make fun of him or put him down. Or, and then uh, he would get angry, and so he'd snap. <laughs> he'd come out of his Zen, which... You yeah, know. there's there. I'll see if I can find the passage, but well, I don't know. Well, you have notes. No, I, you know, I come into this thing blank. I'm like, I read the book, I test myself. I'm like, let me see. No, no, no. I <laughs> I just went back to, to tag a few places that were I know, but that it's I thought good. were good. Um, I don't know if I'll find it while you're talking. But. So, all right, so while you're doing that. The, here's the thing. Here's how I contrast these two books. Dharma Bums is the appreciation for orga- his organic, expressive self, mm-hmm. his spiritual self, through his, and he, which he learns and he's mentored through Jaffe. Right. Which is what Ken Casey is a real Jaffe in real life, I think. Is Ken, that the, Ken Casey? Is that the, the name of him? I believe that's, I believe Keezy? so. Keezy? Ken Keezy. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. Right, and that's going to tie into Tom Wolfe later on. Right. So. I did not know that. You didn't? No. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, wow. So, so, so this must have been a young Ken Keezy. Though. Yeah, but, but an amazing just character to write about. Right. You, I remember that there was a scene in, in Dharma Bums, mm-hmm. a section where, uh, Kerouac's on a trail with Jaffe, mm-hmm. and he's wants a candy bar. Wants yeah, a yeah. Bar. I just read about that guy and, at the end of the book. And Jaffe goes, well, no, we're not stopping. And then when they get back to the cabins, the last night together, Jaffe says, I got to go out and get groceries. And I remember at that point, I was like, I wonder if he's going to get them. Oh, you actually wondered about it. I wondered. I, was, I said, I wonder if he's going to bring them back the Hershey bar. And yeah. he brought back three. Oh. And I and he was like it was so good and that was the kind of guy Jaffe was. Right. You really get an appreciation for the gratitude and the charity, which is something that Jaffe Jaffe preaches a lot mm-hmm. in the book, which is totally absent in Big Sur. Yeah. It you you get an appreciation for temperament and Dharma bums. Right. You know. Uh, well, also Jaffe is. There's a small portion that's somewhere in there, but it's fresh in my mind um, where he's talking about where Jack's character, 
I forget what his name is in the book, but he's talking about how Jaffe is so generous, but not, and it's not in always new things. It's just things that his old shoes that he happens to need. And he, he gives, delivers this line about like, it's basically like, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, yep. but it's a, a Buddhist version of that. And, uh, just the joy of giving. And he's a really Zen character. Joy of giving, and, but to the point where Ray, which is Kerouac's character, Ray, right. feels bad receiving at times because Jaffe will give him like old shoes and it's his only pair of shoes. And he's <laughs> right. like, I don't care. I walk barefoot, you know? Right, right. Just the kind of guy he was. He didn't want anything. He didn't, he didn't have anything. Kind of reminds me of a buddy of mine from home. Really? You know, I would buy my buddy Joe back home. I'd buy him books and he'd read them. And then I'd go to his house. You know, I'd buy him like Christmas books and right. stuff for Christmas. I'd go to his house and he'd be like, oh yeah, I gave all those away. I'm like, where, is you? where are your books? Where's your stuff? He's like, ah, I got rid of it. Just everything. He's like, I don't want to own anything. He ended up living in a tiny house for like a year yeah. that he built. That's funny. He just didn't, he just doesn't want to have stuff. He has a, like a Volkswagen van. He's, he's a Jaffe. <laughs> Everybody must have a Jaffe in their life. <laughs> I also like to get rid of my most of my books while I, I take them down to that, the store up the road. True. Or I send them to my friends. Um, but then, you know, there are a few you just have to keep. But you, gotta, you, you gotta have a library. Yeah. You mean like know, a like, like a staff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I did find the line. It's, uh, oh, well, the little passage. I'm reading. Smith, you don't realize it's a privilege to practice giving presents to others. The way he did it was charming. There was nothing glittery and Christmassy about it, but almost sad. And sometimes his gifts were old beat-up things, but they had the charm of usefulness and sadness of his giving. Yep. I like the Jaffe character in the, in the book. I also like the Sean Monahan character a little later in the book he's there for maybe just a chapter just, just he's there for the parties yeah and well he, no, he, no he hi he has the work too jack's character is or you say monahan's character sean provides the work for them i think he provides some like lumberjack work yeah they and he has the house yeah and christine's the daughter, wife. right yeah i really liked him it was funny because my dad told me so many stories about living in Marin County in the 1960s oh, and man. 70s a little bit. Post-beats. Post-beats, hippie era now. Imitators. No longer beats. hipsters. We're going to get to this. Hippies. We're going to get to that. We're yeah. going to get to the... Which for us is probably coming next, right? Because we had the, like, the 10s, the 2010s hipster thing. Oh, here we go. And the hippies are coming back. I'm sure of it. What season are we it's in? It's all in cycles. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh... Reading about the Sean Monaghan character was really nice. I mean, I saved a passage. Maybe I'll read it later. But everybody is just having a good time. You know, they're all young. They still have dreams. Um, they're just enjoying life. Which is, and it's very different from Big Sur. You know, in like in the passage that I just read in the Dharma Bums, he's admiring the generosity of Jaffe, who is his ideal for the length of the book until Jaffe sails off to Japan uh, to go 
live in a monastery or something for the rest of his life. Who knows if he actually actually did that. But you have that contrasted against his Dharma or uh, Big Sur book, which maybe he was trying to recapture, you were saying? I could see that. But everything that he does in that book is just joyless. Well, in Big the giving's Sur, joyless. The sex is it's joyless. Totally joyless. The friendships are sex. Are, it's joyless. Well, it's it's joyless. Joyless. And, it's joyless and weird with the yeah. sex because he's he's right because he's with he's Cody's mistress. Billy. Jo- right. And he says, and there's one scene in there I think <laughs> where she, oh my the gosh. kids are the kids right there watching him and, he, and he's like I can't and she's like he he can join. <laughs> So he can have oh, oh she says gosh. he can have anything that's here and he's like no nah, I can't this is weird you know and uh well at least he he has a conscience <laughs> Kerouac had a big conscience that's the yeah. point. that's actually I think you would find a lot of people who struggle with alcoholism addiction probably do have heavier capacity for feeling and weighing out the terrors and tragedies of the world yeah even <clears throat> near the, um, I'm jumping all around, but even near the end of the book, Jaffe delivers a line to Jack's character saying, like, listen, bro, if you don't get this drinking mm-hmm. under control, you're never going to, you're never going to become a, a bodhisattva or something like that. I don't remember. Well, you know exactly what it was? What it, yeah. You know what that was? It was because, because Kerouac wouldn't go to the poetry reading. He's like, no, nah, I'm just going to drink this port. Right. And Jeffy's like, but the whole point of what we were going to do next was to go to this reading. And then, but then <coughs> and he Jaffe, bails on him. He bails on him, but yeah. then Jaffe goes to the reading and he's like, oh, we were all getting drunk at the reading. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Off of, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what, but I thought that was, that was funny. Because Jaffe could just, could let things go. Yeah. He didn't hold on to the things that bothered him. Right. You know, Ray would always, Ray had these moments where he, he was like, man, you know, Jaffe and I were in a sour spot. But then the next morning, Jaffe's up yodeling or whatever. Yoo-hoo! And he's yelling and yeah. and he's making coffee and pancakes and he's, come to breakfast, get out here. Because <coughs> Ray was sleeping outside in his bag. and Jaffe was, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll read the, the portion I found it. Okay. The portion. It's like a Torah portion. Jaffe was sad and disappointed. How do you expect to become a good bhikkhu or even a bodhisattva, mahasattva, always getting drunk like that? Have you forgotten the last of the bulls where he gets drunk with the butchers? This is, I guess this is Ray responding. Ah, so what? How can you understand your own mind essence with your head all muddled and your teeth all stained and your belly all sick? Yeah, that's Jaffe. Ray. I'm not sick, I'm fine. I could just float up into that gray fog and fly around San Francisco like a seagull. Did I ever tell you about Skid Row here? I used to live here. Jaffe, I lived on Skid Row in Seattle myself. I know all about all that. There's, there's... I like their hikes and, and all the haikus. They're constantly throwing haikus at one another that they're making up on the their spot. They're, they're like, they're like uh, you know, freestyling haikus. This, this is good. This is a segue into something, a big idea I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the haiku and the way that they're doing it on the hikes and, uh, you know, the other character there, is it Morley? I don't remember. He's in the beginning, he talks a lot, 
he goes back to drain his oil pan. Right. Because he doesn't want to freeze. Yes. So he walks the four miles back. Oh my gosh, yeah. But then he comes back. He actually right. makes it back. And I really like... And this that is, was beautiful. I have that portion. There's two things about where I'm going to go next in ideas. One, Kerouac gives you these characters. Him not as... I mean, he's a character in the book, but mm-hmm. really sort of disappears. Yeah. But he gives you a sense of attachment to everyone he writes about. Everyone. Yeah. Not so much the women. I don't really care that much for Princess or Billy mm-hmm. and Big Sur mm-hmm. or Psyche or Psyche or however. Right. I don't really have anything other than... Psyche's in the Dharma Bums, no? Yeah. yeah. Is it Psyche? Is Psyche? Psyche? I don't know. Even Princess, who, you know, these women are, are definitely not characters built. He does a much better job at building even the people he just encounters at truck stops. Right. Or who give him rides for... And you, you long for them. Yeah. You long for almost everyone he shows you. I think that that's really remarkable, writing, yeah. to be able to do that. The other thing, though, I want to say, and this was a piggyback of what you were saying about the haikus and the mm-hmm, hiking, mm-hmm. the spontaneity, that that's, that was what, you know, in reading Good Blonde and the essays in there, yeah. his views on what the beat generation was, that's what it was. Right. Was the spontaneous standing, not even standing for something as opposed to standing against something, which the hippies sort of were stand against people. And that's why he kind of got bitter. And, you know, he says something about, I believe in tenderness. He, remember he was drunk on that TV show? And he's mm-hmm. like, I believe in tenderness. You believe, you believe in protest. Right. Uh, what the haiku in that energy is that the beats were just these people organically expressing them, expressing something against nihilism, in my, in my understanding of it. Right. As opposed to being for or against something in a big way. Like, I have a, you know... What I'm saying is they weren't social justice warriors. <clears throat> True. <laughs> they were people who were just living through their... They, were, they would walk down the street drunk right. at midnight, like, singing. Yeah. There wasn't any other thing, but, like, that was the expression in the moment that they were feeling. Yes. And then he, he saw the beats being imitated through style, television... Right. Then through the protest movements that arose, and he, he was soured on that stuff. Well, do, do you know why they were called the Beats? Well, the the term, I guess. Yeah, where did the term come from? Do you know? Because in the... I in do. The, he says it, he met somebody, I think it was in Times Square, who used the word on Beat, and I think it was a, like a black hobo. Hmm. That was one, one he, that's the first time he sort of heard it, but then that's not the same meaning, because it wasn't about being beat down. No. So expand upon what you know well, about it's, it. Well, it's short for beatific. Right. Right. It has to do with, well, all those early Renaissance paintings, even medieval paintings of people uh, encountering the face of God. And they would have this, it's like a beatific moment, and you would shine with the light of God from your face, mm. from encountering him. And so the beats were supposed to be about that theme, about searching for God and, you know, reflecting the light of God. So there's inherently a, a spiritual element spiritual. to the whole movement. Um, I read this book 
I do want to get to the, the passage about their hiking, but I, I'll jump back to it. I read this book a while ago by an author named Mark Sayers, uh, and it's called The Road, Tri the Road Trip That Changed the World. It's been a wow, I've heard this title. I, yeah, I, I read it a long time ago, so I don't remember all the details, but one of the things that he talked about, he was contrasting... Uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road with this other road book by uh, an Arab guy um, who was also going around in like the 1940s, I think. In the Middle East or in this Well, he's, I think he started in the Middle East um, and then he ended up in this country. And they so they both have these like parallel... Journeys. Arab guy in the forties. That that guy was. He was pretending he was Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on this. I, I may be off a little bit on the exact timing, but I know that it's Kerouac measured with slash against uh, this Arab guy, and well, that's its own part of the book. But what Sayers seems to be talking about or focusing on in his book is the idea of the rite of passage and how in the taming of Western civilization and in the secularizing of the civilization, we've gotten rid of almost all the rites of passage. The hero's journey. Well, we are kind of back on that thing. It's kind of <clears throat> haunting us every at every step. But there were... When you had more rites of passage, more, uh, I guess, in relief around you that you saw on a regular and obvious basis. For example, you just have to jump in at somewhere in the cycle. So you have birth as its own rite of passage for the mother and the father, the family around them, but for the baby, right? And then the baby will go and maybe it gets baptized or it gets uh, dedicated in a church. That's its own rite of passage. Then let's say you're Catholic, you're going to have a first communion or maybe you get catechized, you know, in some denomination. Uh, that's a rite of passage. Then you reach puberty. You may have your own little feast, which is a, a rite of passage there. Then uh, get engaged. Getting engaged is a rite of passage. Um, getting married is another rite. Having your first kid, it becomes another rite. And then so on and so forth. Like Then you're going through the rites again with your children oh. until they turn you into a grandparent. And all the while you have this scaffolding that's holding your life in place. Like You always have a role to play. You have a drama that gives your life meaning now when you get rid of especially the religion you kind of take the floor out from all of under that and so you don't have these rites of passage we kind of substitute some of them right we have a lot of it is uh, centered around the education system you know as you you get older you're graduating from elementary school maybe Even middle, those are being removed middle huh? school and yeah those are being removed and devalued because so of the criteria True. <laughs> um, and, you know, marriage also being pretty much... Also removed. Uh, removed. And so all these rites of passage 
are just being stolen. And so the scaffolding for life, which is made of all these little dramas in which you're going to have a role to play in the drama so you know what to do, um, when you get rid of those, you're just in this like land of nothingness. You're in like a white room. And so one of the things that the kids who ended up becoming Beats did is, and Mark Sayers is making this argument, is in the face of all these rites of passage going missing, they decided to pursue the one thing that still could remain as a rite of passage, and that was to go on the road. And so, so you don't see the Beats as being partially responsible for ushering in a culture of hedonism and the loss of these rites of passages. No, you see I see them as reacting to. They're, this. Reacting, they're reacting to the to Actually, those all those things being stolen. Yes, from them. because you're right. Because you know what he's. Uh, I don't know if I can find it. In this, somewhere in here. Somewhere in the Good Blonde and others book I have in my hand, I think it's the Beat Generation. Yeah, it's uh, the origins of the Beat Generation. He he talks about in some ways. I think this. Don't quote me on it because I'd have to look through it. But he says something about reacting to the Lost Generation. Mm. That they were the nihilists. The Lost Generation right. were the people who were the void. Right. Um, and that gets back to why he had this belief that I think a lot of the emergent hippie protest movements he felt were lacking in tenderness and romance and appreciation of beauty and that they were just sort of clinging to like angular anger. Um, <coughs> well, the hippies, it seems, but were... But you like the hippies. Huh? Well, I, <laughs> I do like the hippies, but I think the hippies need to be modif They need to be refined... But he, he um, you know what I'm saying though? I think the problem with the hippies, just to go to the hippies before going back to the beats, was that they were very much like they're like the pill generation. You know, the ladies get on the pill. It, oh, you wanna, you know, right. have more sex, not be responsible. Yes. You wanna get what you want, just take this magic button. Press this magic button, right? Well, it's the same thing with, oh, you want to meet God? Just take this, press this magic button. So everything is flipping this switches. this mushroom. <laughs> right. But it's all, yeah, it's all just, you're not doing the work of seeking God and going into the wilderness, which right. is what everybody's done for all of recorded history. You wanted to go meet God? Go out into the wilderness. And so that's what... That's what they did. Kerouac is doing. And that is a process and it's not immediate. But the it's immediate a, generation, the boomers, the hippies... Well, a portion of the boomers who were the hippies, they they wanted, you know, McDonald's God experience, and so they just go through the drive-through of give me the LSD. They have given us the luxury of the American strip mall. It's amazing. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse. It's no, it's it's it. it they have though. They and got that's the world handed to them on a silver platter, and they didn't know what to do. Right. They were like, you know, everything that. The the war, the returning war vets and had built, and their their mothers had built while their f fathers were fighting. Right. So their mothers built this country too in the forties. Mm. They kept it going. Yes. That's a bad. The women back in the forties were badass, obviously. For sure. You know, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but and those were the real women. They were building ships in <laughs> twelve <Can't>, so, hours. <laughs> I just said those were the real women. 
M ships and, and, and B yeah, building ships, B like, whatever, fifty twos. I and think, like, and like then going home and running the house, raising. Yeah, amazing. Our our my grandmother was that generation. One of them. Mine too. One of them. But um, <coughs> so so to tie it up though, to, the beats to me are like an organic thing. There's an yeah. or, the Dharma bombs is an orga- it's organic action. Yeah. It's not it's not planned through through believing in a particular ideology. Right. A beat, beat, I mean, Kerouac beat. makes predictions. I think he predicted the hippies at the end of the Dharma Bums. I think so. You know, he, he, he like makes a prophecy about millions of, of young yes. people with rucksacks no, but, going but, out and blessing the no, world. No, he wanted, though, that to be the case. He right. wanted to see that this was going to be the Beat Generation's legacy. Right. But, but the beat generation didn't do it, because for the beat generation, it was only a fraction of them fraction. that were actually beats. The artists. Right. A couple, a couple of, not even all of the artists. Right. These were the seedy people. Yeah. Kerouac didn't have some immediate success. No. I mean, they had concubines, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> no, they really did. And the, and the ladies, I guess they were embracing that. Let me read this passage. Sure. Near the beginning that I think gives you the atmosphere of the book and also um, of just what it was like to go on these hikes. Well, to go be in, to seek God in the wilderness with is another it, person. Is this Matterhorn hike? This, yeah, this is the Matterhorn hike. What a, what a, that's, that's like the best example of writing about a hike. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's... It's what, it's like one, it's just a, it's almost half besides, a page. Besides Abby, Abby's hikes. Abby's hikes are... I like, the, I like Abby's hikes. Um, but I, he's, he's so atheistic, you know? Yeah, I, he was a nihilist. He had some, well, he wasn't a true nihilist. because I'm believed. not sure if he hates God, but he definitely, I think he hates what people have done in the name of God. His, he, he, but he then just, again, I haven't read enough of him. I'm he just, didn't shake. Just, just he from a he tape. didn't shake his childhood. Yeah, he was raised by an atheist socialist. Ah. so he, he, it becomes part of you. Whatever you grow For up sure. in is definitely seated in you somewhere. Yeah, even if you try and reject it all. Yeah. So here's I, the passage. That's why what? That's why I always. Uh, that's why I, I had a sympathy for the deplorables, like we talked about last yeah. time. I'm not gonna hate all these people who taught me like how to hold a hammer. You know, these what? What did your did your dad take you to church or what? No, I never went. To, I didn't grow up in a religious family. Yeah, I just grew up around people who. That was, it was just a more conservative town. Sure. Probably the most conservative town in Massachusetts. Really. Um, what town? Uh, uh, Ocam. Okay. Well, I sh- I shouldn't say that. It might not be true, but it was it was. The, it had the highest <coughs> percentage of gun owners, in the state. Really. I always used to joke, I'm like, oh, it's Arkansas and Massachusetts. <laughs> Not a religious town, but like a lot of firearms. That's pretty funny. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so here's the passage I'm reading. They're so silent, I said. Yeah, man, you know, to me, a mountain is a Buddha. Think of the patience, hundreds of thousands of years just sitting there being perfectly, perfectly silent. And like praying for all living creatures in that silence and just waiting for us to stop all our fretting and fooling 
Jaffe got out the tea, Chinese tea, and sprinkled some in a tin pot and had the fire going meanwhile. A small one to begin with. The sun was still on us and stuck a long stick tight down under a few big rocks and made himself something to hang the teapot on and pretty soon the water was boiling and he poured it out steaming into the tin pot and we had cups of tea with our tin cups. I myself had gotten the water from the stream which was cold and pure like snow and the crystal lidded eyes of heaven. Therefore, the tea was by far the most pure and thirst-quenching tea I ever drank in all my life. It made you want to drink more and more. It actually quenched your thirst. And of course, it swam around hot in your belly. Now you understand the oriental passion for tea, said Jaffe. Remember that book I told you about. The first sip is joy. The second is gladness. The third is serenity. The fourth is madness. The fifth is ecstasy. Just about, old buddy. Yeah, that makes you want to go camping and drink yeah, tea with your friends in the woods. Yeah. That's that's a great passage. <clears throat> that was on the that was on the Matterhorn hike that they yeah, yeah, yeah. right in the beginning. Yep. There's there? a, there's a lot of food and tea and drink and yeah. The Kerouac's book is a feast of. Even just when he's when he's eating things that aren't particularly. He's eating, you know, in desolation in the cabin. He's eating spam with, uh, I think it's Bernie, the old guy. Bernie. Maybe I'm. Thinking, oh yeah. Is that his name? He's like the old timer. Who brings yeah, him up yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I might be. Uh, they Bernie. they dined together before. Yeah. <clears throat> before he heads back down. And Bernie goes, uh, "Would you like some spam?" Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> his name is Bernie. <laughs> right. No. Uh, so they make spam and eggs or something. Yeah. And he's like, it was, in a way, he describes it being good. You know. Right. Like that's only good in the context of when where you're eating it, right? But he 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 offers a lot of there's just a lot of food and drink and pleasure, mm-hmm. and that trickles down to the way they view sex too. It's very similar to the way they view the food and the drink. Yeah, which is just like a pleasurable experience. You're supposed to be loose about it. Right. You're not supposed to have possessiveness mm-hmm. over, mm-hmm. which freaks, which is weird to me because I'm I I'm not a poly guy yeah I'm a one and done yeah. you know? <laughs> no I'm like one guy one yeah, girl at yeah, a time yeah you know or you know if you find somebody marry them and that's who you're committed to right whereas they they were they were doing things to me that were not sustainable and that gets to where yes. we go in Big Sur yep which I think I want to talk a little bit about now yeah because the, the things that he's enjoying in Dharma Bums, like the passage you're describing, right. Ray is enjoying this tea. It's beautiful because it can't last forever. Mm. If you try and carry that to your 40s, mm-hmm. and your 50s, it's gonna, you're probably gonna feel lonely and broken. Mm. You can feel romantic to a degree, right? But you can't, you can't carry the high for that long. And I, I think in in um, in Big Sur, you're seeing the end of the high. Well, I think that goes back to the rites of passage. Which you have to go through the yeah. You well, you have to go on your hero's journey while you're at the age of a hero. But as a man, you're not supposed to be a hero forever. Your hero, your, you, but your new journey suppo- is different. Sage. Yes, you're supposed to become a mentor, a sage, at a certain point after you've completed your hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And so maybe in this way. 
one of the problems of Big Sur is that Kerouac's character, does he go by Jack in, in Big Sur? In Big Sur, <clears throat> it is a Jack, but it's not Jack Kerouac. Yeah, yeah. Oh, DeLuos. Jack DeLuos. Right. Well, the problem with him is that he, and he's actually, he probably even did, did this on purpose. He's so lucid about his writing. But he, in the book, a big question is, is he going to marry Billy? And is he going to become a father to this kid who annoys the hell out of him? And out of her, apparently. Um, so is he going to become a family man? Is he going to graduate from that bachelorhood, which historically is a young man thing, and become a father and a mentor? Um, and he, he's torn in both directions. Like He does play a mentor role in certain respects, uh, but not completely. So he's kind of divided. But I think that the cure for him could have been to could have been to get married younger and have kids and become a, a family man and take on that role and go through that rite of passage and exit the hero's journey moment of your youth, tie it up and go on into the next thing. But because he never became well, because he never did that, he was never able to fully embrace being a sage, being a uh, someone who mentors heroes. I think another. Big, he ended up just being a failed hero. I think a big part of that failure, though, is that he was deep in the so deep in the bottle, it killed him at forty-four years old. Yeah, I well, mean, it, maybe he's in the bottle. Well, because you're saying maybe that was part of the reason he was in it. Yeah, because he's he's trying to numb himself to the reality that. He has, there's something that he hasn't done that he's supposed to do. You know, like the I, rites of passage are out of alignment. I used to say that the difference between the party, the party phase and just being trapped in addiction mm. is where, you know, whether or not you're still getting your undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> because you'd see some people at college partying every night. You're like, it's party. He's at college. Right, party. right. But they don't, if you don't shake that, if you don't like cut that off, it right. becomes, you didn't graduate. Right. Not graduate the college, you know, but necessarily, but graduate to the next logical yeah, stage. Sta stage in your that journey yeah. and the rites of passage. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's part, that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to di dissect Kerouac's personal. A little footnote there, too. Eric Erickson talks a lot about that life stages oh, okay. around that time in the 60s, I think, and probably the 50s, I don't know. Very tumultuous for young people then. I think we're, yeah, I think we are kind of going through that again, because you have, yeah. we're a generation, I think the next, I, I actually think, I saw, I was reading about this the other day, someone was talking about it, it may have been some, someone on Instagram who was, you know, yeah. an influencer or whatever, sure. but they were saying that, you know, the next generation is actually, you know, generate, what is it, Z? Mm -hmm. Are actually going to, to be like the people who saved this country mm. because it's the millennials who are lost it's not the next generation coming up is going to have it together yeah well the millennials are in large part a bunch of puritans <laughs> ideological puritans yeah they're going crazy and they're just going to create a, a rhode island thing where people are going to be like we're out, we're not interested in all your virtue. Right. Cult, your, well, really, these are like theological wars. 
the religious wars of religion that are going on, but it's secular religion. See, that's that's <clears throat> they really. It's funny you said Puritans. Well, they are because liberalism as it presents itself now is to me a far right. Oh yeah, like ideological it's zealotry. Total Puritanism, witch hunt. It really is. It's these people, crazy. If you just rewound these people and put them in sixteen, like the Crucible. Totally. Yeah. Just uh, was it John Proctor? Uh, <laughs> oh, I was thinking of uh, yeah, yeah, John Proctor or John Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry yes. God. Sinners in the hands of an angry social justice movement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's right? true. This is where we're at. Yeah. These people have everybody scared, hiding, and yeah. afraid to look at things or Yeah, and because so art. many people are afraid of this loud, obnoxious minority, the majority think that this minority is the majority. No, they're not afraid of the, this. They're not afraid of your, your like, like purple-haired 19-year-olds. True. They're afraid of the, the institutions, the, institutions, that back the those corporate structures that are... People beating the shit out of society with this yeah. stuff. Yeah. And because it, like if, if you talk about these things at your jobs, there's people, I've met people who are afraid to disc, to like have their opinions about things known or even just yeah, where they stand politically so known at work. Yeah. Because they're, they're afraid their jobs could be on the line. That if they don't toe the line, they don't go through these trainings with a smile on their face. And this is off, you know, this is, I'm not trying to go down this, this, yeah. Road with it. But the point being, we are maybe in that cycle where we've come back to um, that, that zealotry that, that started to rear itself. Yeah. I, you know, only the boomers could have produced a generation that's got this kind of zealotry. Right. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not like an anti boomer. Like my parents are baby boomers, you know, I'm not like one of those people. Yeah. Who's like, oh, you know, fuck them. Uh, because generations are full of diverse people. But, you know, here we are. I, I particularly, I think my generation's so broken. Yeah. Like, we've been MK ultra to death or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the Zoomers are going to be the ones who save it. I think that it, it's the millennials who have to get no. their shit together. No. I think the Zoomers... Dude, the millennials are weird. Uh, well, weird. there aren't enough Zoomers. The Zoomer generation isn't as big by a long shot as the millennial generation. So it's the millennial generation that's going to have to get it together and figure out how to solve this thing. It's too late. There are, millennials have only a few years left to even to have kids. True. You know? I'm, I'm included True. in that. Yeah. So. Same. Except <laughs> I have a kid. You do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. I want to... Let, all right, to bring Big Sur into this a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit earlier about... We talked a little bit about this earlier. This is more grammatically correct. The contrast is... In Dharma Bombs, you have the love of an embrace of nature, looking for the Zen. Yes. The ba bodhis Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva. Or Bodhisattva. And in Big Sur, what you have is, and I, I want, this is where I want you to expound, you know, ex, ex, talk to me about the city. Because I want to I take these ideas and jump into sort of life with them mm, now. Mm. You, have a, you have Kerouac's, fig, Jack, Jack Kerouac's character in Big Sur longing for the city. Mm. 
and the city to me the modern city but maybe the city's always been you see the city as a place of culture beauty Kerouac it was where the the, the bookstores were the bars the cafes the skid row right the place of, of where the bums were uh, where the, the women were where the excitement was the lights to me I read it as his longing for the city is longing again for the chaos because mm. I see the city as sort of chaotic um, that's very interesting have you ever have you ever longed, longed for the city it's also a machine <laughs> the city is a big machine it is a, it is and it's not nature he's trying to get into that he wants to get back to that and I think in Big Sur they go back to San Francisco a couple times right they just like get in the car and drive up there right right and he hates it he yeah. gets it. he's not happy there either right he can no longer find happiness in a place right that's that's like a code red. M- m- mentally, to me, if you can't find a happy place, yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think about the city? <laughs> well, I like I like the city most when it's which city when it's safe. Uh, well, I like Boston a lot. Have you ever been to Montreal? No. Oh, dude. But everybody does that. Whenever I say no, they're like, oh, it's my gosh, your bro. city. You gotta go. It's cosmopolitan. Ay, uh, yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's, no, beautiful. I it's just amazing. wanna go down to the South Pacific in a sailboat. <laughs> I just wanna put my, my little library on a sailboat Dude, and where... float around the South Pacific like a gone. What about Buenos Aires? Or, uh, <laughs> or Herman Melville. You know what's gonna happen? I'll write my own Taipei. Taipei. What's gonna happen? <laughs> What's going to happen is you and I are going to be like, let's go to a, let's just get on a plane and go for a week to a city. We're going to like land in the middle. You know, we're going to think it's like the best No, city. we got to go to Buenos Aires. Yeah, we're going to go, right. We're going to go yeah. to Buenos Aires and we're going to land there and a civil war is going to erupt there. We're going to be stuck there. You know, I was thinking about <laughs> that today because I have some volumes of uh, the New Yorker from the, four, I have the 40s, Ooh. 50s and 60s and it's just selections course you can include everything but it's selections from those decades and each one is a volume and I was looking for anything on Kerouac I thought oh it'd be cool if I could find something in the New, in the New Yorker about Kerouac and there wasn't I mean maybe there's something in the 40s but I don't know probably there wouldn't be I think, you think he, he was another writer who just really gained his prominence after he yeah, died not, not really no well, he had he had success with on the road yeah. But real enduring legacy prominence for most good writers, artists, anything. Sure. Comes after they're dead. He died when he was 44. He, he wasn't... Crazy. I think he was 44 years 47. Old. Was he 47? I think. One of those. Either way, you die in your 40s. Yeah. Which most of my favorite writers died before 50. McCarthy being alive still is like... Miracle. I'm not even sure he's a good writer. I feel like all good writers are supposed to die. Well, how do you know he's still alive? Nobody's seen him. <laughs> Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> oh, right. No, both of them. Both, uh, of, both of them. Nobody knows. McCarthy's alive. He's, are you sure? He lives quietly out there in Santa Fe. I watched his interview with, uh, with, with Oprah. Oprah. <laughs> it's like seven minutes. He doesn't say anything. He's so... Well, he's pretty personable in that. But I, like, I liked what he said. He's, he's like... What I'm not talking about, it's just, it's not the job of the writer to go be a publicist. Right. 
He also said, he looked <clears throat> Oprah square in the eye and said, Bush did 9 11. Did he say that? No. Oh my God. That'd be hilarious. I was like, did I? I don't remember that. Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> Kite hit plain steel. Well, <laughs> no, it's, well, it's Pynchon who did the conspiracy book, right? Which one? Lot 49 or something. I've never what read Tom's Pynchon. Nothing. I See, read... these two guys, again, are like some characters in my mind that I mush together. I said, well, because they're, they're similar. They belong yeah. to that class of writer who's beyond publishing blogs. Yeah. These are, these are legacy men. Who, who's, these are dons. Th- these, yeah, these are the, these are the men. Not, well, they're men, but there are women who, who do the same thing. But these are the people of the canon. Yeah. You know? Yeah, this is American canon. They're not, like, uh, this is actual American sublime, like Carol Bloom talks about. Yeah. And Pynchon, I, I got into Vineland once, and I didn't like it. Mm. I mean, but sometimes you read a book, it's just where you are at the moment that you don't like it. Right. It has, sometimes, you know, I could read uh, Tom Wolfe, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and not like it because I'm not there. Sure. And that's, that's fair. Maybe that happens. I don't know that. I think as you get older, you can appreciate things for... Where you, where yeah, you can allow an author to take you there. You can, instead of being not like, there. Whereas when you're 22, you're like, I need to sort of be enchanted. Yes. Which is why, you know, Tom, Thomas Wolfe enchant, was an enchanting author. I don't know if he could take me there now mm. at 32, approaching 33. Mm. So, in your old age. In my old age. Well, in my post obscenely romantic age, hmm. because I've graduated through some of the rites of passage. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, I'm still, I still feel like I'm adjusting to it, but for me, it was like getting like a really full-time job and not living out of my van for two weeks a month, nude modeling for my money all the time, like occasionally. <laughs> you knew I did that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, never going to the same place two days in a row for work. Yeah. Was how I lived for like seven years. Yeah. And then driving around and driving across state. And, yeah, yeah. You know, dating in Vermont and dating girls here, there, the other way. That's fun. Being for a regu- regular old Jack Kerouac. I, the, yes, I feel like, but, but that's funny because I wasn't, I wasn't particularly enchanted by On the Road. Mm. I was much more enchanted by Wolf's View. You know, I was depressed by On the Road because I, I, when I got to the end of that book, I was actually reading it in Israel. Interesting. Yeah. I On was... the road, Tel Aviv style. <laughs> to well, Jer- Jerusalem. <clears throat> no, we, we actually didn't spend all too much time in Tel Aviv. Much to my chagrin, because I like Tel Aviv. Uh, but we were just going out through the hills um, in Judea and Samaria and other places, uh, you know, in the Golan. But... Um, it was funny because I was reading on the road in Judea and Samaria, and we were on these hills overlooking this valley that's called, I think it's called the Patriarch's Highway. Mm. And so apparently Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all entered into the land of Israel through this valley uh, at different times. And I think even... Um, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt when they entered into Israel, they also went through that valley 
to enter it. And, and I'm looking at this road. I mean, also, the Abrahamic journey is an on-the-road journey. Like, he leaves that. the city... And he goes out on the road with God. I you know, that in writing somewhere recently, maybe in Good Boy. I'm, I'm, it, it's a common thought. It's you know, it's not but my that's original, the original thinking. Yeah, the 40, but it's the forty years in the desert. But it's one of the original things, and the, you know, where did that story come from? We have like Gilgamesh, and well, there's a whole constellation. But I was reading it over, overlooking this valley, and we were staying nearby, and it was an interesting experience. But when I got to the end of the book and I was reading about Dean Moriarty, I was like... Dean bums me out, too. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be him. A, total, a terrible person, really. I have to say, And Dean... then in the end, you know, he's homeless and he's in, in New York and he runs into his friend and he's asking him for money. And, be, yeah, Dean, Dean is what happens if you don't graduate. Yeah. To the, yeah, Dean... He does, though, in ways he tries... But Dean, I think Dean came from a really bad family too, mm. and it just really like he was abused, and he just, he channeled that into extreme narcissistic behavior. Mm-hmm. The things that on the road, Dean Dean's actions bother me because he I believe he left Kerouac in Mexico when he was sick, right? And he just was like, "Peace out, dude. <laughs> get well. And there get was well no, soon. Get well soon." And, Without knowing if he was going to. Right. And then, uh, I know that there was that time he let a guy, like, have sex with him, too, for money. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys didn't really, Dean was the ultimate, I don't know if Dean was a beat, or if he was really just a narcissist. I don't think he was a beat, because I don't think he was looking for God, at least not in any obvious way. He was the spontaneous, the spontane, spontaneity, without, or spontaneity through a nihilistic lens. Mm-hmm. Kerouac was never a nihilist. Yeah, was, he, and that's why he has this dread and conscience. Yes, even he's really trying to find God, and he's miserable for that sure. He's not able to <clears throat> maybe hang on to those God moments. You don't think he did? I don't know. Not to the moments, but he... I mean, he, he becomes a Catholic. And he, it, was, he, he stayed with it. Really? Well, but I'm, I'm not denigrating Catholicism. I'm just saying he, he begins life as a Catholic, but then he does his whole Buddhist thing. But then he returns to being a Catholic. Unless you know more well, than no, I do he, about he, this. Well, no, he and Ray... Right. Starts going on to Jaffe in this about Christ, and and Jaffe goes, "Are well, you going to bring the Christ? You know, you're going to bring yeah. Christ into this." And, yeah. and and Ray sort of says, "This is all the same thing," and that I, this is perfect yeah. that you're here in this yeah. conversation yeah. because that's how he gets to his perceptions of like everyone's already in heaven, or uh-huh. or heaven is promised because because everything he gets to that idea that nothing actually exists. And he, t- he talks about an orange mm-hmm. in Dharma Bums. Mm-hmm. He's holding it in his... He, he, I think he's talking to his sister when he's yeah. back home. And yeah. she says, you're not actually holding an orange. It's just that your mind is perceiving that there's an orange in your hand. Right. And your mind is an eternal thing. Oh, here we go, Plato, right? Yeah. But, but that he's, he, he's also connecting that to Christ. Mm-hmm. 
And he connects. He he says that Christ, like he sees Christ as a Buddha, a Buddhist figure mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah. He never shed his Catholicism. Hmm. He just more fully returned to it after the Buddhist phase. He Got was it. living yeah. Catholicism through, or uh, living sorry, living Buddhism through a Catholic lens. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I think that ultimately, the philosophy of Buddhism and Catholicism. The philosophies are the same philosophy, so it's not it's not a far cry to to look at one through the lens of the other. Philosophy of Christ, Confucius, mm-hmm. uh, the wisdom of Confucius, uh, the with his Book of Songs. Are yeah. you familiar with the Book of Songs by Confucius <coughs> and just no. how how man is supposed to order himself? These, are these the Analects? The Analects, well, they're two different things, but okay. but yes, that too. He's talking about sort of uh, how Confucius. You're probably familiar. He talks about how he's. I've only read the Analects. The Analects. I don't know but, the songs. But he basically says that man's supposed to order himself through in the same way that Christ teaches. Basically, mm-hmm. this was four hundred three to four hundred years before Christ was even on the scene. Right. Right. On the scene. But. Uh, <laughs> And so, uh, Native American um, origin stories in North America, mm-hmm. similar. Yeah. So you have this, the, all of these pilot stories. Yeah. Originating in some, somewhat the same, mm-hmm. more morality. To not see any overlap was what I'm saying between Buddhism, oh, there's Christ. De- there's definitely, I think, a massive amount of ethical overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, where it deviates is probably the Greek. For sure. Because the Greek... In this well, case. the philosophy of the Greeks versus mm-hmm. the philosophy of the Hebrews, which is not expressly you know, stated as philosophy, but you have to go in and look at what they wrote, and you can derive a philosophy of how God and man must be based on how they viewed the world. But... Uh, that is an entirely different conversation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but I, th- I think that conversation also is unimportant, ultimately, because I think as far as things that you can actually know, it's all ethical questions. And so the ethics in most of these religions, the ideal ethics will be some version of love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Which, in all his hedonism, Kerouac does seem to be doing, you know, even in Big Sur, even when he's miserable. Well, that goes with the moment he's concerned about what the kid's seeing. Right. When he's with Billy, she's hedonistic. Yes. That's the problem. Without a conscience. Without a conscience. Or maybe a conscience that's seared. A lot, you know, and that's... That's what's that's what's eating him up so much. I think mm. again, just feeling it too much. I think the people who do best in this world don't really have concern for their fellow man. And, well, they might, but they they can temper it. Yeah. Whereas Kerouac seems to be the kind of guy who's just very. I think another thing. So one of the characters that I really like in this book, and in Big Sur. Um, Obviously, I really like Jaffe in the Dharma Bums. And I see perhaps a more mature version of Jaffe 
in uh, in Monsanto, in Big Sur, who apparently is in real life Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the yes. the owner of makes uh, sense. What is it? City Lights bookstore. Yeah, that makes sense. Is it called City Lights? Green Light is in Brooklyn, but City Lights is in uh, San Francisco. Um. But in Big Sur, the one character who Jack can actually have peace in the presence of is Monsanto. Everybody else, he's, he, he, he can't find peace. He actually goes to Monsanto's cabin trying to get peace. It's like peace by proxy. Oh, I'll be in a, you know, Monsanto's space and I should be able to have peace. Mm. But it's because of the people that he's with that he's unable to do it. But I think on another level... One of the reasons that he's not able to have peace with these people, and maybe peace in general, is because of um, his inability to communicate with them. Like, there's this word uh, from Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein. Uh, it, it's. I think it. It's basically it has to do with a pri- with private language. Um, I'm forgetting it right now. But when you're the only one who's able to communicate what you're thinking and understand what you're thinking, you are very alone. Mm-hmm. And that hyper-aloneness can make you go crazy because you're too separated from the world. Like there's nobody who can come and see you. So you're seeing everything around you but nobody, and you can make those things around you. You can make the orange an orange, right? But there's nobody to make Jack Kerouac Jack Kerouac because he can't actually communicate what he's thinking to anyone who can understand. This is just, you know, a suspicion of mine. But I think maybe, and like Nietzsche went crazy too. And I think maybe one of the reasons that he went crazy is the same as why, uh, Jack Kerouac went crazy, which was he he reached a point on the mountain of knowledge or the mountain of experience in which he took in so much of the world or so much of a certain view of the world. And because he couldn't communicate it to anyone, he just went insane. Think about Zarathustra. Is that right? Zarathustra. Yeah, he was also coming down from the mountain. But when he gets that gang up there, characters, they they let him down. Right. They immediately fail him. Right. He's like, I can't relate to you people. You're not my, my Superman. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and even in this, you know, that, that's an interesting comparison because cause Jack takes these, char- these characters up with him to Monsanto's cabin, which is this place where he's supposed to have peace. And, and he can't be with them. He's, he's suspicious of all of them. No. He thinks, you know, they want to steal. Oh, you want to marry me so you can steal my money, Billy. Uh, he thinks they're poisoning him. He's like super paranoid. Yeah, he's breaking. There's yeah. also like a, I think there's some real mental illness developed there. That's well, he's, yeah, he's some, he's, that's he's unable normal. to exist in this sick world. Yeah. So when, the, so he should have been <coughs> medicated. <laughs> I mean, I, no, no, no. I just don't even. So no, Car- if I believe in, in that term. L- but. Listen, Kerouac is is Kanye West. <laughs> everybody, 
Everybody wants to take ye. <laughs> Yay. Break them. Yay. 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 Is it yay? I think it's yay. It was easy. Because it's not Kanye. It's Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it ye- what's Yeezy? Well, Yeezy's, I guess. It, well, because Yeezy is Y-E-E, right? <sighs> I don't know. Unless you put a little accent mark, then it could be Yeezy, but it'd be feminine. Listen, Kerouac is yay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Pure Dionysian bliss. Those those Instagram posts, Kanye. Yeah. Posts, those are it's art. Those are Kerouac's haikus coming out. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter, she don't belong to you, Pete. I'm calling. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> um, you know what I think that Kerouac. You know, besides what you're just talking about with Kerouac having those problems with not being able to relate to the world, to the people around him, to Billy, to Cody, and Big Sur, and starting to get paranoid. There's also the fact that the, the end of the beat generation, the end of, the end of his pursuit was there. Mm. And I think it's hard to process that. He had had success at this point. He, wasn't, he didn't have to hunger. He wasn't going hungry. He didn't have to hunger. He didn't have to... Once you, once you get the money from the, the thing that you're chasing, which is a good thing because you want to be able to make money off of it. But I've seen this happen with bands I enjoy, where they stop enjoying it now that they're playing stadiums. Yeah. Uh, there was a band. They're together again, and they're touring again. One of my favorite bands from when I was in my 20s was the Gaslight Anthem. And they went from basements in New Jersey to the stadium. And by the time they got to the stadium, they had these obligations. Right. To other things other than just playing music. And right. They, they were getting paid a lot of money and they were playing the big shows, but they started to feel like they weren't writing honestly anymore. Yeah. They, they were out of gas and they broke yeah. up. They broke up at their, like a peak, like a zenith. You know? wow. To do that says a lot. But when you're a writer like Kerouac, you can't just break up. <laughs> you, can, you can disappear, I guess. You can pension, but you can't. He had made it. He was getting royalty money. Right. But now he's expected to do poetry readings, bigger mm-hmm. events. Yeah. People, people expect something of you now. Mm-hmm. People expected Kerouac to be a certain thing. The beats were getting commodified. Right. They were starting to be like Marlon Brando was seen as a beat really? actor. Oh, he brought the beat fashion in. He talks about that in, in the, an essay in Good Blonde. Beat fashion. Yeah, the white T-shirt rolled up sleeve oh, yeah, was sort yeah, of yeah, the yeah. the beat, you know, because Kerouac was uh, look handsome. He had pomade, and that was the beat look, and that became mainstream American look. James Dean brought that look. Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah real, you know, say. this this was the like the kind of wildcats of the bop, right, the right. Jazz. Folding the cigarettes Just up in your cool, sleeve. Cool, man. Like they were yeah. cool, and it made things cool. But then it was, it's like everything that you were doing organically is pulled out from you. Yes. So the organic spiritual testament you're living is now... It's also not a rebellion the, anymore. It's not a rebellion anymore. It's on the American television. Right. It gets back to why the people who perceive themselves to be counterculture now are not. And they, right. can't, they cannot digest or accept the fact that they are... The establishment. The Puritan establishment. 
100%. So they see themselves through this lens of like, we're like... Uh, we're resisting. We're punks, you know? We're resisting. And they put the resist sticker on their cars. Right, right. Next to the coexist. Oh my gosh. Which is nothing wrong with coexisting, but it's like, you know what that means. That's a slap of the corporate, you know, whatever. I mean... But, but the, when the search ends, right? Yeah. And you don't graduate to the next... Like, you have to accept that the search has ended. Like, your place in what you were forming. Yeah, you were supposed to go find something. Bring it back to your ordinary world. You're supposed to be a master of two worlds already. And to take on a new role. Right. And in this, in Big Sur, he doesn't... That's Dharma Bumps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in this, <laughs> in this, in Big Sur... I would have known it by the texture. It's yeah, so right. nice. In Big Sur, he doesn't... This is him spiraling because he doesn't know what to do next. True, true. And it's sad. Be- who wouldn't enjoy Big Sur? How are you? That's, my God. I had a lot of hopes for this cover. The cover is absolutely beautiful. You know, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be... It's a great, I think it's a beautiful book, but it's something... Uh, it also goes... Be like a good round two for the Dharma Bumps, which I no, enjoyed immensely, but no, it it's... wasn't. It was just misery. It's him trying to get back to the city. Dharma bombs is him appreciating nature. Those are the contrasts I pull. So to, to answer your question, yeah, what does the city mean to me? Yeah. What's your favorite city? Portland, Oregon. No. No, though I did like going to Portland and playing chess in Pioneer Courthouse Square. Ooh. Have you been? You've been to Portland. I've been to Portland like four times. And yeah. It gets worse every time. It's pretty bad now. It's a bad town. Yeah. It's dark. It's Gotham. Yeah. American Gotham. One of my brothers lives there, and he's been giving me not the best reports. But um, I, like, I like the city. Like, I like, I like being mean? able to walk around. What is the city? Which, which city in America? Is it New York City? Boston? You said Boston. I've liked New York a lot um, in the past. I, I like that it's so full of interesting unknowns. You could go anywhere any day and always find something new. Now, if you if you closed your eyes right now, yeah, and you were transported to New York, yeah, so not even not Times Square, but yeah, let's say somewhere in Brooklyn or Queens, sure. And you open your eyes, and they said you're in a city. Would you immediately know you're in New York? Uh, I think you would. Probably, New York has some distinct features. Distinct, right down to the smell. Yeah, and the sound. And the sound. And I think that that's what, that's what the city is. If it's, if it's, you're there and you're like, oh, I know these colors, these buildings, these row homes. Yeah. But there are a lot of American cities. You could put, you could probably put me in downtown Cincinnati. Yeah. Or downtown Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. Or downtown, even downtown Seattle. Or Indianapolis. Um, Take the Space Needle out of Seattle. Yeah. Indianapolis. A lot of the Midwest is like, uh, just like... If it's you like take, suburban cities. You can't tell the difference right. between them. If you took the arch out of St. Louis. Sure. If you took, but that's why they put those things there. Because they they're yeah. like, we got to make up for the fact that you couldn't recognize but this place anywhere. We have a few cities in this country that are the city. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, Kerouac's, Ginsburg, yeah. all these writers. It is a city that when you're in it, <laughs> aside of the human depth, deprivation present today 
Yeah. You know it by a lot of details. Sure. Not just Alcatraz. Yeah, well, the hills. The hills, but the, the architecture, the mm -hmm. floral, the built with the flowers crawl down the buildings is yep. so unique. Yeah. The way that they, they build their porch railings. <clears throat> yeah. The cafes, it has a very European, like. Yeah. And obviously, like the big monuments, the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. The Bay Bridge. Parks. The parks. It is an amazing city. Mm -hmm. it, it's sad that it's been destroyed. Well, and you know, it was it was one of the centers of American culture in the in the sixties. It's supposed to be. To, it should be. It should be today. But it's, now, now since the culture is all technology, I mean, it's still the center because technology, right. being the center of the culture, but that's is still out of San Francisco. And I think that my prediction, okay, is that it's going to go back, that it will be a cultural center. It'll probably be the cultural center again, but only after it's been completely destroyed by the failed policies. It could get destroyed by the San, San Andreas Fault, though, first. And that might... And that, look, I don't want to... I don't want I don't, that to happen, but, you know... Kyle's advocating mass murder. No, I'm not. I'm not. Or mass death, that would be. But on certain timelines and certain... Cycles that line up, you know, that's not beyond. It's in. It's pale. within the cycle. <clears throat> For sure. Hundred thirty years, they say, is about yeah. when that fault is supposed to. Yep. Hundred thirty years ago, San Francisco was like a colony. Yeah. You know, not a colony, yeah. but it was. Wasn't it what it is today? Right. Yeah, that'd be an an interesting kind of purification. It would destroy it. Yeah. Flatten it. Yeah. Completely, which would be terrible. But yeah. A similar thing happened, I think, around the same time. And is on the same schedule with uh, Lisbon, Portugal. You know what? That's fascinating because Lisbon is San Francisco in Europe. I think. I I think so too, and I think Portugal is the California. You of said Europe. that, but like. Um, I mean, literally geographical and <coughs> migratory. A lot of California mig. Yeah. The fleeing Californian yeah. is going to Mexico and uh -huh. and Portugal yep. and. North Carolina, probably. Yep. Not so much, but I, Idaho and Montana. Yep. Colorado, mm -hmm. Texas. But but Portugal, but actually Portugal. Yeah. You have a lot of people going to Portugal. Yeah. From California specifically. Yeah, well, Portugal, you know, they have good laws for people who want to come from wherever. We're gonna have to to restore our culture. Yeah. We're gonna have to destroy the tech monolith. Yeah. Well, they just can't be allowed to censor because I think no, that no. we have to break them. That if people were, if what people liked was actually allowed to flourish, the culture would look a lot different. But it's because you have entrenched interests that want to suppress certain cultural appreciations and expressions that you have this yeah. inaccurate. You have a fake culture. And then, but people buy the fake culture because they think, oh, this is what's popular, this is what's in, this is what's going to justify my existence, um, you know, make it better. But I don't, I think very soon, for whatever reasons, whether it's catastrophe or people embracing virtue, um, we're going to get an accurate version of the world again. You think so? I do. Yeah. I'm not black-pilled on those things. <laughs> I'm white-pilled. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think it's going to be okay. I hope so. I, I, 
See, I, I know you like the technological elements govern, governing sort of our cultural sphere. Because, because they, well, big tech, not because like it's them. big. No, you don't like the, co- the companies, but you like the, the things that they provide. Oh, for sure. They give you ammo and the meme war. I would rather a war. Amazing leverage. I, <laughs> yeah. I would rather a society where we didn't have to have meme wars. Oh, for sure. Which, to me, is a society where, where Google, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok... Listen, I'm are with destroyed. you. destroyed. I'm with you. The, the thing is, though, that I feel like I have to be a realist about these things. That's true. And it's just not, you know, a sober view of the world to think that right. those things are going away. You have to, to ride the wave, but you have to ride it differently. You know... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to keep it... Keep bringing it back to this because we get we got you know a little time left but earlier we said all right you said you know it sounds like you connected to Kerouac I think or you said it sounded like I read Kerouac when I was younger I did and or I lived Kerouac a little bit and that's mm-hmm. true a lot of sort of romance and um yeah I used to like roll my sleeping bag out in truck stops nice where you know, and just appreciate the energy, listen to the sound of cars going by and whatnot. I loved that, but for some reason, I didn't connect it to Kerouac, even though I'd read him. You know, I didn't connect it to like being a like a like a beat activity, mm-hmm. even though I was on the road. Even though my end goal, my first real big road trip, was San Francisco. I drove really? to San Francisco with my buddy Joe no, when we were in college. That was my goal. And then I did it again with a girl I had met and became my girlfriend. We drove to San Francisco again from Massachusetts. Wow. Just to hit the, hit the road. I was like, I got to go back out there and go to San Francisco. Now, and I never connected it to that. I, always, I connected it more to Wolf. Huh. Did and he go to San Francisco? Who? Wolf. Tom Wolf. No, I don't no. think so. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But just, just being on the road. But just the fact that I was drawn, that was where I wanted to end it. Hmm. I didn't say I want to drive to New Orleans. I want to drive to Austin. Right. I was like, I'm going to San Francisco. These are yeah, a couple different routes each time. It's but a beautiful city. It's romantic. It, romantic city. California is romantic. It's the most beautiful city I've ever seen. Yeah. Take Again, take away the despair of it. Sure. And the social despair and the oligarchy oligarchical element that's driven into the ground but in the political Nancy Pelosi let me tell you well you know I'll give, <laughs> I'll give you one more factoid but it is the most romantic city I've ever seen yeah factoid like the beatifics yeah factoid do you know the origin of the name of California no okay so apparently California is named after a magical dreamland in a 15th, sorry, 16th century Spanish fantasy novel in which there is a queen and she is, well, she's an Arab queen. She's a caliph. Like a caliph is, a, is an Arab king. Oh, wow. And 
and the the name of her magical dreamland, her caliphate, is California. I didn't. I and had so no California idea. was named after a place in a novel this ruled by this queen. Etymology of the word. Well, yeah, I guess you could say you could say that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the, the etymology plus history. Yeah. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. But I had I, I wrote this word in big, and I have to ask you about it. Yeah, do it. <laughs> I just had to sign language. Okay. Um, jazz. Ah. I know I know we're like to the end here, but I think you can give me some, I think you can give me some time on this because I don't know anything about jazz, but jazz in Howell Ginsburg, yes. it, jazz is running through it. Jazz, jazz, bop, bop, the bop, which is you know gives way to the mu- it's musical, jazz and the night. And right. jazz being of the night, and these characters all being of the night, Kerouac right. of the night, the parties they have, the music they're playing, jazz. What the hell is going on there? Well, what is the energy of jazz? What is that? Tell me. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah it's a long <laughs> one. But you, you, what's well, at least tie it to this because I need help with that. So jazz is a musical style that only really exists in a way that is good if you're if the players are virtuous virtuosos okay you got to be really good to play jazz um it's kind of like william carlos williams i think that he was a jazz poet he was mentioned in an essay oh is he really man good you gotta read good blonde i'll read it um so in poetry, and it's the same in jazz, well, it's the same in, in music and in the Western musical tradition, which ended up with, I think, its peak achievement is jazz. And I think we'll probably go back to some form of that very soon as something that everybody really enjoys. But uh, in poetry, the way that poets wrote for at least a few thousand years was in a very structured manner. So you had, you could conce- you could conceive of poetry as like a political project. You know, a poem, um, a sonnet has a very strict structure. Has a set number of lines. Thirteen, something like that. Um, I think it's uh, ses- It's been a while since I. Well, there's 15-line sonnets. There's an Italian sonnet, an English sonnet. Right, I don't remember right. the exact number of lines. But it's very set, and you have basically laws of the poem. And so the writer is working within the laws. And you could consider the laws to be like, well, what are the laws of this land of the poem? It's like it's a republic. A republic is defined as a state that is ruled by laws, not by individuals. And, and also by natural, well, you hate this idea, <clears throat> but natural rights or rights that are endowed in a republic. You're not, so, so, but those laws can, you're saying in jazz, there are just natural, well, like you have to be a virtuoso. That's like a natural <coughs> law of jazz. Like you can't. Well, kind of. With jazz, it's very different. So you have, you have to go through the progression, right? You have a, you have poems that have laws. 
and people who obey the laws. So the, the weight, the creative weight in a structured poem like a sonnet mostly resides within the laws. Like you could be an average writer, but if you write a sonnet and you obey the rules, then you've written a sonnet. So you've participated in the tradition and you actually have a creative piece that makes sense. Now, you see with Emily Dickinson, uh, and then later on, William Carlos Williams, who I think are two of the best examples of this kind of jazz poetry, uh, where they start breaking the rules. But I think they're only able to break the rules because, first, they understood the rules very well. But second, because they were virtuosos, they were basically geniuses. And in order to make a good poem, which is every single word has to be great if you don't have rules, um, you gotta be a genius. And that's why when you read William Car Carlos Williams, every single word is the exact perfect word that you had to choose in order for that thing to work. Whereas if you're writing a sonnet or you're writing a, a blank verse poem, well, as long as you have that thing in iambic pentameter, like it doesn't matter as much if you picked the perfect, uh, what is it, disyllabic foot. Like the weight is more on the poem and less on the writer. You're getting at something no. that he talks about in this essay, in this book. Really? To a point almost. So is, it's surprising to me you haven't read it. So let me get to music. Okay, right? yeah, and I'll, so, I will yeah. hold this. So with music, um, and this is kind of the thesis in my my uh, the philosophy of jazz music book, which yeah, we'll I'll be putting we should out talk about that soon. sometime. I should read that. We could talk. We could check yeah, about that'd it. be good. Um, so with music, you have the same thing where there was strict. Well, it has to do with actually with the authority of texts. So like with most classical music, the, the reason why you even have the music at all is because you have this structure in place where there's God, who is the writer, maybe it's Bach, and then there's the Bible, which is the text, and then there are the, the orchestra or the players. Who are the talent. Who are, yeah, and they're the ones who are interpreting the text. So they, they still exist within the society that believes that there's a God and believes that the Bible has authority, which is the score, and believes that the purpose of everybody who's trying to make the music is to interpret the Bible text so that they can get to the intention of God, who is the writer of the text or the inspirer of the text. Now, as time goes on, the... God, and this is what ends up happening with jazz music, is that the, the uh, composer gets removed. There's no composer anymore. And also because there's no composer, there's not really any text above the players anymore. All of those things kind of get subsumed into the players and dem democratically distributed to where every player is God and they take turns being the one who is defining what the text that is the music is, that they're playing. And there's also no Bible, so there's like no text. So there's no, 
like strictly defined music. And so in order to, for them to play together, yeah, they have a theme. They do have to agree on a theme. But in order for them to play it really well, they ha and without the rules, <clears throat> they have to be really, really fucking good. Mm. You have to be an amazing player to play good jazz. And, uh, and I think, well, that was something that I saw as a difference between the Dharma Bums and Big Sur is that the Dharma Bums is less jazzy and Big Sur is mostly jazz. You'd think so. I think so. Like, especially in the way Just that he does Just the technicalities his... of the writing, it's, you, you think For it's, sure. it's really hitting that... Yeah, so... because the, like, you look at the way he does his dialogue. The dialogue is all on the page. There are no line breaks for the dialogue. There are M dashes. Um, he's doing even more of his just, like, dropping in little phrases and couplets of words that don't really make... Uh, any logical sense, no. but they're in there just as like the music of language. I like that. I like that kind of stream of consciousness thing. Well, he does that in, in C at the end of the poem. True, but it's just but it's absolutely messy. unintelligible at that point. Okay, so okay, so you're making a distinguishment. But what I'm saying is structurally, like, and then there's a whole like existentialism. I think is the philosophy of jazz, which is that's another but, thing. But but. To bring it in, but what's yeah? What's so going on? I think is he's he's breaking rule. He's like shedding the rules of literature, and of grammar, um, and he's making his communication less about structure and more about feeling. It's all about the music of language, the feeling of language. It's not about the actual structure of language. And that is very much a jazz thing, where jazz is constantly stretching the grammar of music and giving you a feeling of thing. It's all actually about spontaneous feeling, too. Mm. And so, you know, that, that makes sense. that's, well, okay, again, so, very, like, Kerouac. So they're living, they're really living out this, the philosophy you just explained organically. Like, the music is almost a soundtrack to well, what they're doing, but then they're of also course, applying... And like, right, so, and that goes back to... But their to writing the, is jazz, then. Of course. Kerouac's writing is... That, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what it. it is. But then it's also mapping to the culture, which is structureless as well. They're, all the rights have been eroded or thrown out, and so you have, like, a jazz culture. Now, granted, there are people who are still trying to adhere to certain rites of passage albeit modified ones, but the actual culture and the, the death of God in that culture kind of makes it so that when you, when you do a lot of those things, it is a little bit fake and contrived. And maybe that's why, you know, the Beats rebelled or the hippies really rebelled against what so, their square parents who were trying to have these rights, but there's no God foundation underneath them. So they're like, well, I don't believe you, mm. which is like my dad, actually. He told me stories about how his dad went to the Episcopal Church, took them to the Episcopal Church every morning, but then on Sunday nights, he was getting drunk and playing cards with the priest. So it's like, yeah, you have the, you're going through the motions, but do you really believe right. and practice? And it doesn't seem that's like interesting. It. So that's a lot to digest. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm just trying to wrap up the thought. I'm trying to wrap the thought back. I'm stuck. I'm stuck back when you said that jazz was a, was democratizing genius. 
essentially. Was, right, okay, you know, so because, let me expand a little bit on that before you read your, th your passage. Okay. Because, all right, when you go and listen to orchestra music, the players are not creating anything on the spot. They're reciting what they're reading on the page. Mm -hmm. So they are, they're kind of creating music to an extent, but they're not originators of the ideas that they're playing. So you may have a hundred people in the orchestra, or actually let's make it more simple. You have a 10 piece orchestra, none of them wrote that piece. Right. So it's not, you know, indigenous ideas of the, the people in the orchestra. It's from the composer. But with jazz, you may have a theme, but if maybe you don't have a theme, maybe the people all get together and what they're doing is they're all, so the, remember the composer is God. But when you get rid of the composer, who is God, and you get rid of the text, you get rid of the score, you just have players. And so the players need to be good enough to get together, jam, and create music on the spot where the ideas are actually coming from each player. And so they're it's being like born you're creating like a haiku almost. They're being born in. Well, they're create. Everyone is basically creating their own script. Like I'm creating but it's in the my contribution, but and it's it, in a common spirit. Yes, and it's in spontaneous. Yeah, it's on it, the spot. Jazz is, jazz is much more of a spontaneous ge genius. Yes, and I think this is why maybe um, the next step for religion is to maybe to move beyond it. But you're going to have to have people who are basically geniuses. Like they're going to have to seek and practice the abilities to have their own ethics. But of course there's going to have to be a, a common ethical theme, but you know, they'll be, they'll be having to do it on their own. I'm kind of grasping for an idea here, but I do think that in the same way that jazz is uh, kind of autotelic, it's like each person is his own goal. Um, that ethics can be that way too. And Kerouac is kind of doing that um, in the Dharma Bums. What was your passage? Well, uh, that's, that's, I'm going to re-listen to this and start really thinking about that. I might even do a deep dive on jazz. because. Mm. Yeah, we should. I have a friend, actually. We could, find a, we could do it on a writer, or uh, I mean a composer. My friend Dalton, who I was in, in the, my old band with, he, he's, he loves playing uh, jazz drums. Mm. And it's funny because when I see him do it, it seems very simple. But he reminds me that it's actually the most intricate and difficult to play. Yeah. Which is what's fascinating because, you know, you, we're used to playing in aggressive bands and, you know, and it's like we associate technicality with like a mount. Right. Whereas jazz is more intricately what you can do with less in a lot of ways. And it's, that's more of a tell all of the artist. Yeah. But, yeah. Quality. Well, I mean, there's quantity but, too, but. Yeah, so this, this essay, though, what you had me thinking on it, because you, you really said it. Hmm. You were talking about God being Bach. Yeah. <laughs> but Bach is the genius who disperses his... Your writing. He's like a king yeah. allotting food or yeah. resources uh, to someone or to a group, and the talent plays what's composed for them. Right. And... Uh, Kerouac in the essay, Are Writers Made or Born? He asks this question and he poses it and he says that um, essentially writers are made 
but geniuses, not talent. He distinguishes between talent and genius. Geniuses like Melville, Whitman, or Thoreau are born. These are the guys he, of the American sublime. Of the American sublime. According to Harold Bloom. But he also names, he names Dreiser as being a genius because yet, and he says, yet no one ever wrote about that America of his as well as he. Um, geniuses can be scintillating and geniuses can be somber, but that's, but it's that inescapable, sorrowful depth that shines through Dash in italics originality. So they're telling really the first story and people try and imitate them. Mm. So Bob, like Homer. He mentions Homer. He mentions Joyce. And he says Joyce was sort of scorned in Ireland, obviously a Catholic, by his Catholic peers. And also he broke convention yeah. in every way. Yeah. And it's like, well, what else are people going to do who are just talent at best? Wow, I gotta read that. They're essay. going to they're going to they're going to scorn him and then imitate him for years afterwards. Right. Um, it's just a three page essay. What I found funny was he says Camus is just a talent. I think. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I recently changed my mind on Camus and I decided I don't like him. So, but uh, the 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 idea I pulled from this is one that I think you kind of were talking about, which is that's just funny to me that. Um, and that maybe it relates to how he viewed jazz. Well, I think maybe, and this... Or it's all part of the same thing innately. I think you may end up having an entire generation of geniuses who are born, but they'll be like ethical geniuses. My kid is going to be a genius, dude. Totally. Hell yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to... I'm going to read to him. I'm gonna re... What am I going to read? His bedtime stories are going to be really intense. <laughs> what am I going to read? Volume 1 of Durant. <laughs> no, no. All right, son, we're going to sit down with uh, Common Sense. Oh, tonight. you have A History of Greece by J.B. Burry? Yeah, yeah. What? I, I don't that know is a very it. rare find. What's he going to get first, though? He's going to get like. Um, I was like, looking for that recently, and it is expensive. That book? Yeah. I think I paid like five bucks for that. What? Wow, great deal. It's, it's weird. Books, books. Prices fluctuate all over the place. If if the book if a book sells for five bucks, right? Same book. Yeah. And then it's gone, and the next one's ninety because somebody has an overinflated price. People will just start listing at that. Of course, I I purchased uh, some book by A. A. Luce on uh, sense experience, sense perception. For five dollars, and like a few weeks later, it was like five hundred dollars. It was crazy. I do have just, a few this books just that are worth a lot of money, and we'll, we'll end it here. I'll talk real quick about that. <laughs> Look it up there; you can see. No, I that book, Tree of the Tree of Man, which has some of the best cover art. Mm. I'll show you that after, but that's uh, that that book goes for about a hundred. Wow! So I have quite a few books that just kind of go for a hundred bucks. Um, but, you know, those are fun to find. If you can find them cheap For and then sure. just hold them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Patrick White. And we'll never, we won't read him because he's an Australian author, but. Yeah, this is strictly America. Strictly America. But I, I guess we'll. Pan America, to... too, you know, we might do some South Americans. I mean, we should. Oh, we, will. we could because we could do. Julio Cortazar. We could do. Uh, uh, Marquez. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. I'd love to. Something that isn't a hundred years of solid. Yeah, he's Pan American. Oh, this is 
This is amazing. That's now we're opened. We can read uh, Canadian authors, like uh, Trudeau's autobiography. About I just don't know if Canadians are Americans. Yeah, does Trudeau written anything? <laughs> no, no, they're Americans. I was born uh, in such and such a date. My father was Cuban. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Canadians are honorary Americans. <laughs> I love my Canadian friends. Anyway, I think we're going to end it. Let's end it. Thank you.